The following broadcast was produced by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco as part of our Lighthouse Learning Library. Um, thank you for asking me to come. Um, and I, I, I'm a little nervous. How many of you live up here? Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I have, when I get through messing up my uh, little speech, I have a um, album here with some 1880 pictures in it that you probably would like to look at. Um, my, uh, one of my aunt, great aunts who was born across the street up here had saved these and they've been passed down in our family so uh, they're really fun to look at. And some of these pictures I used in our book. Um, anyway, I'll try to be interesting. <laughs> my kids say I'm not, but um, I don't know. I think all of you know that this range is um, Mike Amos Mountain Range, right? Or Mount Peter. Uh, but it actually started out to be my Yakimus. And uh, in 1917, the uh, United States Board of Geographic Names officially named the mountain uh, my, my Yakimus. And, and of course, the name we're used to is my Camus, which they decided using later on uh, because of the usage of the people that lived up here. And uh, the, where the name Beater came from, and it, it, please bear with me because I hate doing this. <laughs> but I'm going to read because I get all flustered. Um, and it's from the book. Uh, in 1858, a young newly ordained minister from a Dutch immigrant family that settled in New York in 1662 came to the Napa Presbyterian Church to I should have a clean <laughs> to replace the minister who had resigned. <clears throat> Reverend Peter Bruman Beter, that's a family name by the way, loved nature and the beauty of Napa Valley, taking many hikes with some of his parishioners up to the mountain, often to the peak. And some say our valley reminded him of his home in Schenectady, New York, where he grew up. Um, being aware of the young man's love of nature and his many trips to the mountain, the townspeople started calling our mountain here, Beater's Mountain. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. Um, I don't know. I think it's an allergy or something. What is this? Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, anyway, uh, often Mr. I mean Reverend Veter and the parishioners went up to the peak, and they called it Mount Veter Peak. In 1940, it was named officially Mount Veter Peak by the same board. Um, Reverend Veter, as I found out. Uh, had a really interesting life. He left Napa in 1865. He was here from 58 to 65 to accept a teaching position at the new, brand new uh, San Francisco City College, but he continued preaching at the Presbyterian churches in the area, including Napa occasionally. He left the college in 1871 when he was requested by the Emperor of Japan to come to his country to help with the formation of the new Tokyo University. That's when they first started the uh, 
Tokyo University. They asked, actually invited many of the Western scholars to Japan. I think there were like from, as I recall, like six or eight from the United States to help set up a European and American style education for the new government. Reverend Veter and his family returned to America in 1878. He often returned to Napa on many occasions and again preached at Napa Presbyterian Church. And I just read the other day that on one of his many trips back to Napa, he came up to go fishing <laughs> in Wing's fish ponds, which I thought was sort of cute. Um, Reverend Veter married uh, Amelia Jacks, who is, uh, was a daughter of an early Napa pioneer judge. Um, they had lost a child while they were living in the community and buried little Bessie out at Tulakay. And later on, when Amelia died, <coughs> Amelia, their son Howard, and daughter Jenny, and Reverend Veter are all buried at Tulakay, which is sort of nice because we can go say hi, guys. Um, Carolyn Jacks, which was Amelia's uh, sister, who she was married to the Napa banker George Goodman, arranged it so that the Vader plot is right next to the Jacks plot. It's sort of fun when you go out there because here they are, these people that made all the history. Where is that cemetery? Tulakay is on Coonsville Road off of Silverado Trail, downtown Napa. Oh. When you're coming into town, yeah. Yeah. you take a real sharp right. Yeah. Actually, if you take a street before you get there, you can make a shortcut. <laughs> um, as early as 1853, there were settlers up here. Uh, and a forward, now this is sort of interesting, a forwarding and commission merchant, Stalham Wing, who had a successful business transporting crops and merchandise aboard a steamboat on the waterways of Michigan and Ohio, came to Napa City with his family in 1853. Uh, the term forwarding and commission merchants was used in the earlier days and is similar to UPS and freight lines and things like that. Um, that we call now. Uh, Stalin Wing came to Napa City to help settle his wife's brother's estate. Mr. Wing started purchasing property in Napa City and he acquired many acres of Veter Mountain. By 1860, Stalin and Elizabeth Van Pelp, another old Napa name, had a working farm with horses, cattle, pigs, and sheep, along with a small vineyard on the property. In 1864, Wing entered boxes of his grapes and six bottles of his wine in the Napa County Fair. Charles Krug entered nine, and I hear it wasn't too good. <laughs> I mean, somebody made that remark. After 16 years of working on the farm and building six artificial fish ponds that one time held over 17,000 prized German carp. Did you guys know that? I didn't think so. The wings moved back to Napa. By the way, this important Napa pioneer family also had an illustrious history with ancestors arriving in Massachusetts in 1632. Some of the family members were in Massachusetts Minutemen and some fought later in the Revolutionary War. Napa has a, a repeatedly, Napa has such an interesting history with all these important people that is not well known, unfortunately. Stalin lost his wife in 1871, and about 1880, he started selling the property 
all of his property. At, at one time, it amounted to over 2,000 acres. Most of the wing farm was sold to John D. Thompson in 1881, and he in turn sold 320 acres of land to a dentist, Dr. John Bauer, for $4,000. Goodbye. Both men were from San Francisco, and history has shown many of Napa County speculators were all from San Francisco. The popular wing farm with guest camping was known as Johannesburg. And I think it's real possible that Stalin named the farm after a 900-year-old winery called Johannesburg in the Rhineland region of Germany. I don't know that, but I'm guessing. And I, I get to guess. Uh, most, of, most likely the name did come from there. Anyway, Stalin returned to live with his brother Lucetius, I think that's how you say it, in Ohio, until his death in 1888. He had requested to rest near his Elizabeth in Napa, but his brother buried him in Cedar Hill Cemetery in Ohio. Dr. Barr's widow, Anna Barr, had sold an interest in the Johannesburg uh, property to Walter Metz and his wife, and he began running ads about the resort's facilities in Napa and San Francisco papers. If you ever look at the old newspapers, there's ad after ad after ad, and it's every week. He really did advertise this place. Um, Mrs. Bauer and Mr. Metz made costly improvements to the property before they, in turn, sold the popular resort in 1899 to Paul. Now, bear with me. I think it's Gesh, also of San Francisco. I'm going to say Gesh because you don't see my writing. Um, and he also was German. And by December of the same year, he sold to Theodore Blankenberg Jr., and his wife and the couple, uh, and this couple ran the property, or the resort, for 14 more years. So some of the folks that, that property we're on right now. Right, it is. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. Camp was Johannesburg Resort. Yeah, right, right. He had, I think he had, Wing had about 450 acres at first. But as it, and I, you know, I could go through the whole title search, but I didn't do that. Um, I was interested in... I was really interested in him. I mean, I think he was quite somebody. He was also very, very uh, wealthy is why he was able to make improvements around here too. But um, um, the, the, the Blankenbergs, and you know, at the time the Blankenbergs ran the property or owned the property, there was a Mr. Schuler and uh, Schubun, I think his name was, two Germans that ran it, I think. I always thought that Blankenberg ran it, but according to what I've just read not too long ago, these two people were, they, on the census, they call them hotel managers. So uh, they didn't own it. I, a long time ago, thought they did own uh, Johannesburg, but uh, Blankenberg owned it and his wife. Don't forget his wife. Um, the Blankenbergs sold the resort property to Edward D. Swift, a lumber merchant from San Francisco in 1913, who reportedly purchased the property for investment in a private ranch. And there's criticism, uh, I don't know whether they're talking about Mr. Swift or the other residents on the mountain about the logging and the thinning of the beautiful forest, uh, which 
you know, the residents did drop trees. They had to build a house and they had to have a farming area. But in the 1860s, and I think it was between 1866 and 67, the Napa Wood Company purchased 15,000 acres on this mountain. And they were selling firewood to the San Francisco and vicinity. You know, they were, that, that's where a lot of the timber went. I don't think we can blame all of our farmers because there weren't that many of them, um, although they did own large pieces of property. Um, in uh, 1925, the Hanfords purchased the resort and called it Hanford's Rest. Avon Hanford was the president of the Golden Gate Ferry Company out of San Francisco. We had all these nice, rich people up here, <laughs> uh, which is sort of good because they maintained the, the chunks of property. About 1927, Philip Webster purchased 103 acres from the now-widowed Audrey Hanford and developed the LaCoya Home for Boys Camp. Uh, as we sort of probably all know, and I bet you Brian knows wherever you are, that, um, oh, right in front of me, <laughs> couldn't see you. Uh, the depression would handle, you know, the loss of some of the, it changed hands again in 45 and 47 until Mrs., uh, was she what, Rose? Was she a Mrs.? She was a doctor, Dr. Rose Reston. Oh, I've never but, seen a doctor. Yeah, her. that came later on. Um, at that time, she was uh, a Miss Rose Reston. Well, she was very instrumental in purchasing the 311 acres by that time uh, by the San Francisco Lighthouse for the Blind, 64 years ago, which is really remarkable length of time for anybody to stay in business. <laughs> I meant to say, if you have questions, please stop me. I'd love to try to answer them. Um, anyway, uh, I've, rural, rural Health and Pleasure Resorts, they were called that then, were quite popular in the 1860s through the 1890s. Many were operating in Napa County during the last half of the 19th century. Some of them on Veter Mountain were Johannesburg, Solid Comfort Inn, Home, Hudeman Spout Farm and Resort, and he had these uh, um, spouts. <laughs> That's why it was called that. And, now, and of course, why we're here, the Mount Veter Resort, the Elkington Farm across the street up here. Um, well, you have to climb quite a bit. I've forgotten how far down this was. Uh, Hudeman's Resort boasted of 12 small cottages in 1884, which I think is remarkable, along with camping facilities. All of these uh, resorts started out, I think, with camping and then built their little cottages, I think, like my, my ancestors did. And then I also made a point of saying the Elkindons only had three cottages <laughs> with rooms and in the, in the main house. In 1884, Hudeman sold the property to Rudolph Jordan, Jr., the winemaker for the nearby strike winery. He planted 75 acres of grapes, calling it the Lotus Vineyard, and ran the Lotus Resort. Then, in 1899, Theodore Gear purchased the property, continuing to run the resort and vineyard, but changing the name to Sequoia Resort sometime around 1903. The reason I mentioned Mr. Gear, and this is sort of funny, because we sell grapes, too, over on Atlas Peak. Uh, 
the Lee Wilsons, who are my relatives also, sold their red grapes to Mr. Gear for $40 a ton in 1918. And if you're in grapes, you know that's not a lot of money. Um, but Mr. Gear was complaining there were not, up, they were not up to standard in sugar, which is really unusual because I always get the two, your sugar's too high <laughs> with ours. Uh, the Wilson Ranch was over on Partrick Road. Lee Wilson married one of the Elkington's younger daughters. Um, that's how we're related. The early resorts usually had a large house or lodge with the operators serving excellent meals. I guess they had to get people to come back. Um, and there were cabins, tent cabins, an occasional swimming pool, hiking trails, croquet courts, and all games of all kinds for their guests. And sometimes they had hunting and fishing available to their guests. Many of the San Francisco guests returned each year, sometimes staying for a month, probably because of the fog, often bringing their, a lot of them brought some of their own furniture, you know, because they were going to stay for a while, which seems like a lot of trouble, but stagecoaches would pick up the guests from a ferry wharf or later the train depots and deliver them to the establishments for an additional fee. It has been said that one of Johannesburg stagecoach drivers, Henry Branlin, drove a coach from the Oakville Railroad Depot up Dry Creek through the rock, rocky narrow Wing Canyon to the resort for about 10 years. Mr. Wing had petitioned Napa County in 1870, I believe, I didn't write it down, for the Wing Canyon Road, but they never did it's sort of like nowadays, you know, they didn't want to take on the, the maintenance, I think, because it's so steep. But he never did get it approved for a county road, um, although he did try. When James Elkington, my great-grandfather, filed his homestead on 160 acres in 1868, government mountain land was just about all that was available in our area. His homestead, by the way, wasn't officially approved until 1875 because there was an extreme backlog of filings because in 1862 and again in 1866, the government opened up public lands and everybody was clamoring for them because I think the cost was like $16 or something. And, you know, and I think that's why my ancestors came out here. Uh, plus, I'll get to that, the Civil War. Um, the Alkinans had come to America in 1856 and settled in Connecticut. They were silk weavers, as their parents were, and had left England at the beginning of the decline of the industry. The threat of war with Russia was probably another factor. Another, also, the glowing reports of the New World definitely influenced their decision to come to America. They settled, like I said, in Connecticut, though. I believe their move to California in 1864 was mainly due to the reconstruction of the Union toward the end of the Civil War. They had left England because of the threat of war only to live through the American Civil War that caused much turmoil in the states. <clears throat> That's my opinion, by the way. I can't prove it. Um, the Alkinen family of six, with James's mother, Amelia, boarded a steamship on the East Coast and steamed across the Atlantic to the Isthmus of Panama, traveling the new, or they traveled on the newly uh, constructed railroad for a 47-mile trip to the Pacific Coast, boarded another steam 
steamer to San Francisco and all their trunks. And can you imagine with six kids? Um, or four kids, I should say. And they add, that added the trip from Panama to San Francisco was another seven days. Uh, their trip from Connecticut to California took a little over a month compared to the overland route, the wagon trains, which usually took about six months in the 1860s. Uh, that was before the Continental Railroad was hooked up. Then it got busy. After about a year's stay in San Francisco, the family moved on to the Veter Mountain in October of 1866 and developed a working farm and raised a total of nine children. My grandfather was born in London. He was the firstborn. And the next three children were born in New London, Connecticut, with one being born in San Francisco. The remaining four were born in the Napa Redwoods. Um, I forgot to say that, too. I think I... I go into a little bit about the Napa Redwoods. Um, like Mount Vita Road was Redwood Road before it was Mount Vita Road, and it stopped right up here. Um, it was the end of it. It didn't go through when the resort was in, and, and actually when Mr. Wing was here too. The Mount, Mount Vita Resort home had 13 rooms with three cottages, each with two rooms that could accommodate two families. They were divided right down the center. And where are you, Bob? He can attest to it because he lives in one. Still, don't you still live in one? I don't live, I don't live in one of the originals. One of the originals is on the cover here. Yeah. I used to live in one. Oh, did you? We were we were we were up there in 1980s, and um, the lady that owned it was so gracious. She let us. I was hugging old fruit trees. Oh, Grandpa! My great grandfather planted it. You know, it was sort of nostalgic. But we never got to go in. Of course, the home was gone too in that time. But my great grandparents had eight acres of vines, along with 400 fruit trees, berries, a huge vegetable garden, alfalfa, and a field of grain. The Elkingtons had two farm workers, a carpenter, Matthias Hunger, from Switzerland, and a laborer from Bavaria, August Meyer. Also through the years, many of the Lone Tree school teachers boarded with the Elkingtons. James Elkington had two sawmills on his property. The large one was about a half a mile from the county road up the hill near the house, and the smaller one was right down alongside of the existing road, the road's still where it was then, uh, the large mill had a 40-foot square pond, mill pond, that was fed by a nearby stream to turn the water wheel, which provided the power for the saw. When Stal this is sort of interesting. When Stalham Wing informed James his smaller mill was on his property, and I think it's because of the way the road was. We had that going on on Atlas Peak Road, where they put the road, um, the you know the lines for property are straight, or usually, or they should be, and it sort of went into one of the turns. And my great grandfather, not being aware of that, built the little sawmill. And Mr. Wing informed him that it was on his property. And James offered to buy, now this is par parallelogram, that's a hard word to say, shaped piece of property. It was, a point, it was one and a quarter acres, and uh, Wing sold it to him. Uh, there's no value 
uh, expressed on the deed, and that was in 1873. Also in 1873, Emma's, um, Emma Elkington's brother Anthony Clark purchased 40 acres next to the Elkington's acreage, which would be west. Yeah, it's west from the main part. The longtime bachelor married the widow Mary Peterson Horn in 1876 and moved to her property in Dry Creek. And I can't say I blame him because she had like, I think 350 acres or something. Anthony deeded his 40 acre parcel to his nephew, William, the second oldest boy, Elkington boy. That made the total of the Elkington homestead 220 acres. 20 acres of that um, James had purchased from his neighbor to the north, Joseph Broadhurst. Now, don't get mad at me, people, but the stream that fed the mill pond was the same unnamed stream that I petitioned the Board of Geographic Names to name the stream Elkington Creek, since it uh, was had been referred to in 1879 by the Napa County Board of Supervisors. My letter was sent in on 2002 with a whole bunch of documentation, a packet, and by 2007, the hurdles were cleared and they did designate the small stream Elkington Creek. Ta-da! Congratulations. No, I, you know, I, I think that it's to honor him because they, you know, it wasn't named, so I named it. Excuse me. Where is that creek? It's over by the cove. Oh, by the cove? Uh-huh. Right up to the cove is the, was the north, I think it would be north east, no, you know, it would be the northeast line probably of the, of the ranch. Yeah. Where does it cross as it comes further down? It crosses this road there, and I have no idea where it goes. Oh, it goes down into Dry Creek and Wayne Canyon. Okay, so it crosses on the bad turn. And these guys have water recovery. Yeah, it... it, it my property. That, okay, that creek over there, yeah. And don't sue me if it washes your property out. <laughs> I said, don't sue me if it washes your property out. Especially. Really? Really? <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, I I, it, it, I I stopped right there at the road. <laughs> so what's the name again? Elkington Creek. E L K I N G T O N. Uh huh. It's a good old English name in the midst of all these Germans up here. My uh, my uh, mom's side of the family were all Germans, so I can say that. Um, the Elkingtons sold the Mount Vida Resort in 1887 and moved into Napa. In 1888, they moved into a home on Calistoga Avenue that he and his sons built. James and Emma sold the resort to Henry LaHoyt, an insurance agent from Alameda whose wife had had a rooming house. Mrs. LaHoyt ran the resort for five more years and then sold it to William Watchmouth. I love these names. About 1892, a native of, he was also German. I, I'm not picking on the Germans, by the way, because I'm half German, so I can say that, right? Um, he, in turn, Mr. Mr. Watchmouth, uh, sold it to another German, Peter Holtzreiter. And I know you've all heard of Holtzreiters, right? 
Oh, come on, Tony. I'm serious, I haven't heard. Well, you're from San Francisco. <laughs> right. You only hear a sutra made off. Yeah, right. Above us is a sutra ranch, but it's not. It's a nephew of Adolf's or a grandnephew or something. Um, hmm. Anyway. Um, Let's see, where was I? Oh, Peter and the Holzreiter family ran the resort from 1895 to 1938. And this is probably why they're a little more famous than the Alkingtons, because they were up there a lot longer. Everybody in town knew who they were. Um, uh, they, they closed the resort when Peter's wife Ida died. And Peter died in 1943, and the property stood idle for about six years before son Felix purchased his siblings' shares and subdivided in 1949. Up until, you know, from 1865 to 1949, it was all one piece, 220 acres. Felix and his wife retained the part of the property that the old house was on and ran a nursery well into the 1950s, calling it Holtzrider's Gardens. I think they had uh, begonias pretty much we're into begonias. In 1963, the Hulse Riders sold the property to Catherine Griffin, Griffin, excuse me, who lived in the new house Felix had built until her death in 1998. She's the sweet lady that Barbara Hicks, uh, Larry Hicks wrote a history of Mount Feeder. It's unpublished, but it's quite, for a high school kid to do it, it's extremely extremely in-depth. I mean, he goes into the Moyers and everybody's family. And Barbara was his mother, and I, I've forgotten how I met her through somebody, um, and Barbara brought us up here, and my daughter and I were able to, to run all over the property, like I said, hugging trees. She's got a bunch of pictures <laughs> it's sort of a stupid picture, come to think of it. We're hugging a dumb old tree that's practically dead. But anyway, Catherine Griffin, um, she lived there until 1998. Uh, Mr. Holt uh, Peter, I mean Felix Holtzreiser, I'll be all right, I'm going to go home, um, had torn down the badly deteriorated old Elkington home to make room for his new house. It, it's, well, like every place up there, there's not very many level pieces of land, and, and uh, the house is falling down anyway, so... Um, some, you might be interested in some of the uh, 1870 settlers on the mountain, and I'm just going to read names. I go into um, as much as I could find out without spending my whole life doing it on some of these people, who they were and how many acres and where they were. Anyway, um, there was Joseph P. Lewis, Jacob Hager, William H. Sherman, John Gartman, John P. Miller, Robert Scars, J.C. Cooper, Daniel Cheney, Peter Dato, who was the Peter Dato family. Uh, in fact, I pointed out to my daughter in Juanita. Of course, Juanita couldn't probably see it because it was on your left side, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> the old Peter Dato house is still standing, by the way, down the road. Um, Christian and Anna Pust, P-U-S-T, Joseph Broadhurst, John H. Wright, he was uh, uh, Caroline um, Broadhurst's father, 
E.M. Farley, W.F. Moyer, John Branlin, and Dr. Milo Pond. Most, most of these people were natives of Germany, and a couple were from Switzerland. Just about all these settlers had small vineyards and produced wine most of the time for their own use. Dr. Pond had a very interesting farm. He had 225 acres. And at one time, uh, there's several articles in historical um, data that says they think the reason that Dr. Pond purchased the 225 acres was because he was going to build a TB sanitarium, which didn't happen. Likewise, on our property on Atlas Peak, Dr. Bolson and my great uncle Dowdy purchased our land to build a TV sanitarium and it never happened because they were beginning to get cures. The, the, the vaccine was beginning to become available. But anyway, Dr. Pond had, he had olives, apricots, peaches, grapevines, prunes, and had the largest Japanese persimmon orchard in Northern California at that time. I wonder if any of those are still there. I don't even know exactly where his property would be now, but be interesting. He also had a rooting nursery where he uh, uh, propagated uh, grapevines. Um, he planted Chinese sugarcane for the feed for his livestock. Not sure what, if that ever worked or not. And besides being a reputable um, physician, physician in Napa, he was all, he also invented several surg surgical devices used in surgery. One of which was an improvement to the tracheotomy. Uh, 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 I'm tripping over my own tongue, which is not unusual. Um, tracheotomy tube for surgery, of, you know, which I thought was really sort of neat. There were 52 children, believe it or not, in the Redwoods in 1869. So they were busy. The Little Lone Tree School was built about 1869. It was situated about a quarter of a mile south of the Mount Vita Resort on Mount Vita Road, which is now Mount Vita Road. Um, the Redwood, Redwoods Common School District referred to it as the upper school. The lower school, the Redwood School was also built about 1869. It was located on Redwood Road. There's a lot of confusion about these schools in the history. And I really did a lot of work on this. And I know, I, well, I don't know, but I'm pretty darn sure I'm right about all that. I looked up the old records and the deeds, and that's what I came up with. About 1885, a new school was built on Dr. Pond's property and it retained the name of Lone Tree School Number 39 by the district. I think that's where the confusion starts, really. By 1913, due to a change in the school boundary lines, another school was built lower down the mountain on the Moyer property. That was below the Pond Ranch. And in fact, it was right contiguous to his property. Lumber was used from the old schoolhouse building to build the third school, which is practical, I think. It was called the Mount Beater School from then on. It operated until 1966. The old Redwood School operated until 1932 when it lapsed, closed, for the lack of students. Often these rural schoolhouses, um, they had to have at least six children or students. And if they didn't, um, 
they would have to close the school and go somewhere else. Uh, Margaret Hoover, who is a, a clerk, talks about Atlas Peak School, which is sort of funny because that was down the street from us, um, where our ranch is, and she all, her mother was a school teacher in Atlas. She's still alive, by the way. She's gonna be 99 in June. Sharp as a tack. I wish I had her sharpness. Anyway, she talks about her mom uh, right, the kids were real little, she was real little, moving up to the schoolhouse to teach school and bringing her kids so that they'd have six kids. Uh, you know, there were only like three or four people that had children up there then, but they counted her kids, so it worked. She was there, I think, about four or five years. Um, the, the, the Little Redwood Cemetery was established in the late 1880s. James Elkington, Mr. Farley, Mr. Moyer were on a committee to suggest a site and examine laws relating to the establishment of the cemetery. The first elected directors were Anthony Clark, Peter Dato, Farley, uh, E.M. Farley, <coughs> excuse me, W.F. Moyer, and um, gosh, I can't even read my own writing. Oh, Mr. Lake. Um, one of my relatives married a lake up here. Anthony Clark, uh, Peter, by the way, was one of, among one of the first burials at the cemetery in 1898. Anthony Clark is buried over in uh, Yachtville Cemetery, which is, well, he lived on Dry Peak, so that made sense. Oh yeah, it's still there. In fact, I hear that there's a problem with a man that wants to put a road through it. And I don't know how that, does anybody know how that's going now? Mel knows. Mel, Mel's kind of charge. I'm sorry? Mel knows. Well, I, um, I can't remember who was telling me all this. And I thought, what do you mean a road through a cemetery? You can't do that. There are people yeah, that have been, been there for a while. This has been going on for quite a while. For a long time, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. it's been going on for quite a bit. Are they still fighting? I think it went to court. I thought it was done. Well, that's hell ground, isn't it? I mean, come on. Anyway. Excuse me, on the Mount Peter School, is there an idea of what the address is when you're looking up these? Uh, well, you could look up the deed um, and get an idea. Um, the the Mount Peter School was built on um, the Moyer property, if that helps. It's on uh, 2200. I can't, I can't. 2200 Mount Oh, goody, I didn't know that. It's on the right. Yeah. You know, what I was concluding here that the Elkington children, and there were nine, uh, ended up leaving the mountain. I, my, especially my grandfather, who was the oldest, he went and moved to San Francisco and got married. And, had some kids, one of which was my father. Um, but I think that's why the schools kept moving down the hill because the people were, you know, there were more children down the hill than up here. Stalin Wing only had one child, and I think he left here or even before they sold the property. 
So anyway, um, the Elkingtons married and had all their own families. My grandfather, James Edward Jr., moved to San Francisco where he met and married Anna Louise Rice. I don't know where, well, my tallness came from the Germans, but she was four foot 11. Um, in 1879, they lost their first child, and their second child, my uncle, William Elkington, was born at Mount Beter Lodge in 1881. Um, and I believe, you know, it wasn't a big deal back when I was growing up, and, you know, like we lived on Atlas P, or I, it was a ranch, summer ranch for us, but my uncle lived there. But it wasn't a big deal. But but now it's sort of a big deal to say, my uncle was born on Mount Vader <laughs> in 1881. And I think it was because my grandmother lost a couple of babies. And, they, and my great-grandmother had 11, 12 kids from some reports. So she sort of knew what she was doing, and it was safer. Um, my... Uh, they lost another baby after that, and then my dad, Arthur George, was born in 1887 in San Francisco. Um, they, Daddy was 40, I think he was like 47 when I was born, that's why I'm so young. Um, their last child, James uh, Irving, was born in 1898, also in San Francisco, and they went through the earthquake and fire and lost all of their... Uh, real estate, their home and business and some flats, but they were able to rebuild and were moderately successful in the vulcanizing business, which is making rubber tires. Five of the Elkington children remained in Napa, three settling in San Francisco and one in Los Angeles. And that's it, folks. I hope you read the book because the book goes into a lot much, a lot more detail than I put there. Also, uh, if you want to look at these things, I brought up these are um, census reports, and they're probably names you probably have heard. All of you have probably heard, and I highlighted them because I know I've heard them and. I've only been up here two or three times, except for over there. But, um, and also, interestingly, I was fooling around on the computer. That gets me into trouble. And I found, I don't know if you people know that there is a road assessment erosion prevention planning project for the Wing Canyon assessment area, Dry Creek watershed of Napa County. And in there, they give some history of the Wing Canyon, but I thought it was neat because you got to go on there and it's it's public record and they have some pictures. I didn't bring them. Oh yeah, I did. Of course, I don't have a colored copy machine, but they have pictures of the, the old Wing Road, Canyon Road, which the stagecoach supposedly came up. The stagecoach came up the Redwood Road too. Um, you always hear about the stagecoach going up Wing Canyon, and they came up the Redwood Road, too. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was the same one or not, but um, anyway, uh, I have tons of pictures in here. Um, and I have, I, I would like you to look at this, if you're really interested in the area. There's pictures of eight, in the 1880s from my family of the property, this there's one here that when you put three of these cards together, it makes a panoramic view of up top here. 
I, I someday I'm going to get it. My photographer over here to do something with it. I got pictures of the family. Um, what a motley crew. But you know, I, I, I'm proud of them. They were farmers. And that's what we are. My daughter and I. Yes. Uh, my family was here in 1904. What is your name? Van de Wark. I'm sorry. Van de Wark. But I'm not sure where they were in Napa. They bought a vineyard. And so, how would I research that? I have two relatives in Turkey. Have you? Do you have ancestry? Yeah. Okay, go into Ancestry, put their name in, and then go from there. Follow especially the uh, voter's registration. A lot of times you'll get an address. Not not always, but in, you'll also um, uh, find out when they came, you know. But, but uh, I, what I did with a lot of this... I try really hard because I'm not, uh, I don't live in this area, uh, and of course I'm talking about 150, 40 or 50 years ago, so I tried really hard to try to prove everything I said, and if I didn't have proof, I said, well, maybe, you know, but you can go down to the record recorder's office, and I don't know if you've been in there or not, but they have these wonderful books <laughs> that go back to 1848, I think, is the earliest. And you can look up, and they go all the way up till nowadays. Of course, nowadays it's on the crazy computer, which I always get lost on. But um, the books go up to um, like 1905, I think, that you can actually see names. And then from there it goes to some more books. But if you get lost, ask one of the clerks to help you. They're really nice. That's how I'd research it. And then you could find, sometimes, you know, in the olden days, they didn't put an address. Like now, I think they have addresses, especially if you have it listed for real estate, you know, um, uh, for sale or something. So it's sort of, you got to look for it on a map. I have a map in front here that started the whole thing, um, 1895, this map. And it gives you names in, in, in um uh, the genial uh, recorder's office too. There's 1895 uh, and there's 1915. Now that map you might find their name on because they had names of property owners on the 1915 ones also. It's sort of fun to see your family on there, you know. I so just to clarify for me, this this was a resort. This was Johannesburg. And up, and up above the road, behind this Wherever the road is. <laughs> so that was Mount Peter Resort up there. That 3405, there's a driveway going up. That's the original driveway. Then what about LaCoya Road, the resort? That was when Mr. Webster started, the, I think Webster. Now Webster was here. Oh, he was, well, it was, on, it was part of Wing's property the La Coya Road area was at one time. But according to what uh, Hope has, maybe I read it wrong. See, this is where it's fuzzy because there's not a lot written about it. So we owned all this property and then started subdividing it out to different folks and there's blending and people that bought it and gave it back because they couldn't afford it. There's a lot of mixed history up here. Yeah, yeah, right, there is. Yeah, and it's real confusing, too. Um, um, 
was it Hampford or Bauer that sold it and then got it back because of non-payment and sold it again? I think it was Hampford, I think. It yeah, it was Audrey Hampford. She was a widow at the time. Um, he, interestingly, he, Mr. Uh, Avon was his name, uh, was killed. Uh, it was a murder in Napa. Uh, they found him out by um, uh, Bruman's uh, Dairy out on, um, shoot, what's that? Pardon me? Yeah, but he, yeah, up that way. He was dead. He was beat up. Or he actually died. They found him, took him, and he died. But uh, that's when she, you know, apparently took in Mr. Metz. And then he did a lot. I guess she had a little money, maybe. I don't know much about Mr. Metz. I didn't. You know, I could, I could have sat there for hours and years and done a genealogy and all of them to find out. I, I, um, it, that part of the, the, it gets fuzzy to me after the 20s, around the 20s forward. The, the ownership, I mean. I'm interested because I know when um, Hope's father, uh, Mr. Webster, bought the property, she was still finding a lot of Indian head, uh, arrowheads and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but I don't think, you know, I don't want to disagree with Hope because after all, she was here. But I, I sort of suspect, unless I missed it, he bought 103 acres and he eventually lost it. Yes. Because of the depression and all that, which is sort of sad because he obviously liked the land. Um, but I sort of am hesitant to say I could look into it more. But well, what I was getting at is Wapo Indians. You agree it was the Wapo tribe that was up here on the mountain? Um, no, I. I <laughs> Because there's a lot you, of confusion about what tribes were up here. Well, there were so many tribes. Uh, Napa had a bunch of different names, tribes. Um, Yukon was up here. Uh, Winton. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of, and they always say Pomo, and I sort of wonder about Pomo. I think it was Lake County. You know, so they throw these names all over the place, and they take in all these areas, but they're not, you know, the, the Native Americans should probably get a little upset with them, which I think they do. But no, I don't think it, WAPO was, it's sort of a general usage for the whole Napa County, and it, it wasn't all WAPO or whatever it really was. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a real confusing thing. I had... Uh, Have you come across someone that you consider the most knowledgeable person about the Native Americans in Napa? Um, no. I, I have Mrs. Um, um, What's-her-name's book. Oh, gee, 1970s. She wrote a, a book on the... Yolanda Beard. Thank you. Yes, Yolanda Beard. She was my mentor in that, if you don't mind. Uh, no. Something. was born in the south part of Napa. Uh, there were sub-tribes uh, up and down the valley. Right, yeah. They were Wapo, and they had a unique, distinct language. That right. was Wapo, not related to other areas. Yeah, they all had their own little languages, dialects. Yeah, yeah. But Yolanda's book, which I happen to be lucky to have, too, um, is pretty close to, as far as I found out, anyway. And I'm not knowledgeable on it at all. I don't even want to go there <laughs> because it's it's a real sensitive area 
you know, nowadays, and um, and I don't know whether Middletown ha it would be. That was a different group completely. Well, yeah, and they they're they're way up there, and I don't know if they have anybody that was from here or any Native Americans anyway. And the ones that were in the valley here, the Wapo did come up to the mountains in the winter because it's warmer. Yeah, yeah, um, right, yeah. yeah. But they were all different tribelets, and they used to fight. I mean, not probably viciously, but but if you overstepped your boundaries, you know, sort of like we do nowadays, that's my fence. <laughs> well, there were three main groups that were sort of lower down. The Wintons and, yeah. And yeah. But then they uh, had, you know. Did you know Yolanda? Yes, I did. Oh, Lucky Duck. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoy her book. It, it's I read it every, yes. Um, I moved, uh, our family moved here 50 years ago. And I rode the school bus with a lot of kids that went to the Mount Peter School here, Robinson, the Frasers. Yeah. And uh, they had some great stories. Like, if it was a nice day, they would just go outside, teach history, you know, yeah. and walk around. And, yeah. and they, when they went back to the regular school system, when it closed, they tested really high, all of them. You know the people, the people that learned in these little one-room schoolhouses. I mean, they would, they're the ones that really had the education because those people, the teachers, cared about it. Um, the the Mrs. I talked about Mrs. Hoover, Margaret Hoover, Clark, or Margaret Clark Hoover. She uh, was a teacher of. Um, she used the word, I didn't, retarded children. Um, she had a uh, credential from the state of California, which I never knew until I have a, a pile of her writings at home. But, but she talks about the one-room schoolhouses because and, and, she grew up in one. And yeah, I believe the last one who had the bus at Well, 1966, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I, one of the things that just came to mind, my Aunt Maddie, who was born up here, Used to we when we were children, uh, we would come up. I was born in Salinas Valley in Salinas, um, and we'd come up to the our property. My uncle raised his family up there, um, and every time we'd come up to Napa, we'd have to go by see my aunt Maddie, my great aunt, and she'd have all these pictures in the drawer. And I'd say, Aunt Maddie, can we look at the pictures, you know? And my God, I cannot remember any of the stories anymore. She did tell one that I never have forgotten because I don't like rattlesnakes. Um, I don't think anybody does, but she, she was telling how the kids would walk to school and they were going down the road and this is dirt road going to school and there was this big old rattlesnake right across the road and they'd jump over it and keep on going and I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's the only story I remember, which is really too bad because she, like I said, like you, you know, she grew up up here. Here's a picture of my uncle, great uncle Will with his hunting dogs and his rifle somewhere up here. But, I think that orchard you're looking for might have been our property because ours was all prunes. If I, what? Our property was all prune trees when we moved here. Yeah. And we might have been the farm. There's a picture here of Peter Dado, by the way, yeah. too. Where is that? Right next to this property. Anyway, um, does anybody have any other questions? Can I go home now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not done with you. I locked her into a four. 
of the house and there's your house in the background there you can see if you take your magnifying glass there's a nice big old vegetable garden you know and they you know one thing about the pioneers or the settlers they worked hard and they weren't afraid to work Ask my daughter and I. We're pioneers. <laughs> we work hard, too. But no, they were self-sufficient. Now, the road um, is another question. In fact, I found a newspaper report of my great-uncle Will uh, talking to the downtown in Napa. Uh, forgotten the date, but it was one day when the, the Mount Vita Road washed out, which... I, I hope we can get home today. <laughs> but anyway, he was telling them how they had to go all the way around to come into town. So they were traveling up and down the, the road. But no, they, they had, and that's probably why they had the orchards. And I know a lot of people think, uh, as I have found, I ha I'm in the process of doing another book and in the research, just about everybody in the olden days, and I'm talking about in the 1800s, had a vineyard. And most likely the vineyard was not just for wine grapes, but for other grapes also. And it's a misconception, and I, I'm guilty too, my great-grandparents had eight acres of vines. That's what the assessor's report says. But I'll bet you some of that was Table grapes. Table grapes, you know, and like, you know, unfortunately, that sort of puts a hole in the balloon, but uh, but it's true. Uh, raisin grapes. Yeah, that's oh, true. Yeah, grapes. right. Yeah, well, they three, did everything. Yeah, there are three different types of grapes. Right. Do you know, do you know if they uh, preserved any food by using the sulfur method? You know, like they probably did. No, I don't know, but they I'm probably did. Yeah. But, I mean... You know, they, they had this way of life up here, you know, that was, yeah. that was pretty strong. You, you either had to grow it or you, or you didn't make it. And I was always struck by your Atlas Peak Diary, you know, the one that you Oh, yeah, that, yeah. But because, I mean, I thought that was really interesting to see when you said he, he said he went over to some farm, you know, to get some turkey and I always remember that. Yeah, they were down to Capel Valley. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Harris, yeah. yeah. Which is not, it's like, a, it's not a hop, skip, and a jump. It's like seven or eight miles. Yeah. And it's down the mountain like this, yeah. Well, it wasn't only that. I think he had a horse by then, but... Um, well, he had to, because he was doing yeah. plowing. But why did he want the eggs? Well, he wanted to raise turkeys. That's yeah, what he yeah, to do. yeah. And uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was very interesting. I was just going to say, on the on the census, didn't they always record how many chickens, how many oh, hogs? How yeah, many they charge. They used to charge five dollars for a dog. 
and almost everybody had those things to, you know. Yeah. Say, yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. They got away from that after probably a lot of yeah. people shot them or something, but no. I think that up until probably turn of the century, 1900 or so, most of these people were. They didn't rely on downtown, uh, other maybe for sugar or flour. They probably, he had, uh, Grandpa had a grain field, so they probably made their own flour too. And, well, yeah, I mean, obviously he made his own wood up here too, you know, because he yeah. needed it. It probably was uh, quite an effort for him to, to get milled wood or something like this and bring it up here because you needed a hell of a way to bring it up. Well, he, um, uh, I think Larry Hicks says somebody he interviewed uh, talked about the Elkington supplying wood for, for buildings and fences. I know he supplied uh, probably redwood for the Wing Farm because he talked about it. But you know, with Atlas Peak, that was easy because I had copies of these journals that this man that lived there wrote. I mean, there were one-liners like Baby Born Last Night. It always kills me, too. Baby Born Last Night. Well, geez, Mr. Harris, what kind was it? His mama all right. You know, he never went into any detail, you know. But, I mean, it was like one of the things that happened on the farm that day. No, no but it was, it was the way, I'm sorry, Jim. The, the, the way that he got around was, was, was the most interesting. Oh, he walked too. everywhere, too. Because he lived up on Atlas Peak. But he didn't have a horse for two years. So when he had to go down to and, and then to go to San Francisco yeah. to work on his, his, you know, buying the property. You know, he had, Well, he took the ferry. I mean, yeah. he didn't swim. Yeah, no, there wasn't a ferry between Atlas Peak Road. No. <laughs> I mean, he but there was a ferry in Napa to, at the Embarcadero in the uh, 1850s. So he, he went down to Napa, picked up the ferry, and went down to get... And I think he was going down there to get his... Um, Naturalization too, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And, or no, that was in Napa, I think. But. No, but it's quite an interesting story. Yeah. And then you realize where all the boarding houses were for. Yeah. Because if you looked yeah. it in town, you could make it back home. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, he had to spend the night. I, mean, I believe he he says he got to Napa at two a.m. So he yeah. walked at night. Yeah. Was it moonlit or did he take a lander? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I used to uh, spend long conversations with Pete Wall, the namesake family in the Wall Road, before he was, uh -huh, uh -huh. He was here as um, a young man who walked to school, to the early school house, and then to the bottom of the Oakville Grade. He told me about how they put in Mount Vita Road and the Oakville Grade Road with teams of horses. <laughs> the pick and, and shovels. I'm yeah. wondering if you came across any yeah. information about that kind of thing, building the road. The extension of this road yeah. to be the, it, There's little in in the Atlas Peak book we were talking about. Um, I, by the way, I wrote a book about Atlas Peak uh, many moons ago now, um, and it was from these journals. I was fortunate to meet the grandson of this man that owned part our property is part of his property and he had all these journals and before do well I mean, you might have heard of Duhigg Road well it was Stuart Duhigg was the man a sweet guy but before he uh, died we were lucky enough to copy these journals and one day I my husband was dying of cancer and I looked at these 
copies. And I said, oh my God, they're fading. So I had to start writing the story <laughs> before I lost, you know, it took me a long time to do it. But uh, it was good because the man told about these extra important things to him. And then, like I said, the baby stuff, that, well, shoot, that's mama's department. <laughs> and she was only 16 when they, he went and got her and moved her up to the mountain. When going back to the point of uh, what was made about the food, uh, the property next door to this piece of property was an old hog farm, commercial hog farm, Happy Acres hog farm. And so I know, I mean, just from a deduction, I'm sure a lot of the hogs got sold locally. And, oh, yeah. And right. certainly to the folks on this property. Um, in, in here, um, I talk about the mallard, uh, mallard, uh, mallets meat market. And uh, James Sr. and I, he always talked about William, and I think William, which was the second son, my grandfather was the first son, but they'd always take um, uh, deer down to the meat market, and I guess they sold it, and they, I'm sure they, they bought it from them. But, you know, because that's when we had deer. My gosh, do you guys have deer anymore? Oh, we've lost we've lost deer to the mountain lions and the bear. We have bears breaking into our vineyard every... You have bear over there? Oh, you want some? <laughs> we have bears juniors, too. We, we have some pictures of them in our fence. There were some bears up here, too. Oh, yeah, all over. I ran into one directly several years ago. My dogs were, her dogs were barking. She had big dogs. And we have two houses, and, and I went down, what are you barking at? And I walked out, on, it was dark. I walked out with a flashlight, and I shined, and the dog started backing up, and I shined my light, and here's this huge bear coming out. And I said, honey, get the gun. <laughs> Not to kill them, but to scare them away, you know. But no. When's the last time you've seen a bear up there? Um, they're around. Uh, they ate it between. No, it was just a few years ago, actually. They harvest they ate at least five tons of grapes. Yeah, we lost a really bunch of grapes this year. And, they, and everybody says, well, why don't you have a fence? And of course we have a fence. Have you ever seen a bear go over a fence? <laughs> bear wants to get in, it's going to get in. <laughs> we're going to, we're thinking about maybe electric fence or something. I don't know, we got to do something. We lost six cows in six days. You did what? A long time ago, about 25 years ago. shot it before I called anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Well, you know what? They were here first. 
first? <laughs> and you know, everybody says that to us. I mean, why don't you shoot them? Well, I'm not gonna get up at 2 a.m. and go out there and probably miss anyway. But you know, for a while there, they'd get in and the first couple of rows, right next to the forest, would be eaten. This year, like Sharon said, my daughter, um, we lost four or five tons of grapes. Plus, some of them were probably because of the weather, too, but, well, I mean... turkeys in there as well. So. Yeah. Are you aware of the man in Cobb Valley a few years ago who... Killed? Uh, yeah, hired someone to kill the bears, and... Uh, I heard about it. uproar from the county about that, wiping out the family of bears. That I understand. Well, you know, it's a it's really hard, though. You know, when you when personally, that's the way I feel. That after all, uh, like I told some friends that said, "Why don't you shoot them?" And they, and I said, "You know, we have enough of grapes for them this year. We didn't, but anyway, you know, they belong here, and they were here before me." And, but the, the whole thing is, is I, we, we overlook Capel Valley, and we can see Vaca. I hate that. We are not in the Vaca Ridge, by the way, guys. We're in the Howell Mountain Ridge, by the way. Oh, that makes me so mad. Anyway, we can see Blue Ridge, and we can see the Red Hill, and in between there is Lake Berryessa. But, you know, it, it's like you can see all these new houses, in this wilderness, which we live in, I grant you that. But I mean, that's what's going on. They don't have any place to go. You know that George Allen wrote that he saw 200 there in a day. He was known to brag a little bit, but it's very. Well, now you better read my next book because I write about him a little bit too. Well, I, I can try to keep track of sightings around here, and it's really pretty rare. And well, no, when he there, but, um, when he was here, though. Oh yes, yes, a different time. Eight, yeah, eighteen thirties was a lot different. Can I go home now? <laughs> no, this is we can break, this is fun. We can break this, but if people want to come up by your book, um, okay, so maybe hand out some signatures in the book. Well, of course, of course. I'm a celebrity. Brian, did you have, I did have one question. You mentioned about the early aquaculture that we had with thousands of carp. What happened with that? I don't really know because he had six uh, artificial ponds. And according to what I've read, he was had the idea that they would sell these fish to the local people to eat. Yeah. You know, he was trying to promote that. And I don't really know where it went from there. That was from a newspaper article I read. Um, I would think that when he started selling the property that they were still here. But then again, like we're talking, bears love fish. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, that's our mountain lions are bobcats. The preceding material is owned and distributed by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco, California. To obtain permission to use this content for classes or other uses, please contact us at publications at lighthouse-sf.org. Or to learn more about the Lighthouse, visit our website at www.lighthouse-sf.org.